You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Hello and welcome back to The Small Print. I'm Brian Williams and today our guest is David Pierce. David, will you please introduce yourself the way you like to be introduced these days? Oh, good heavens. Um, yes, uh, my name is David Pierce. I'm a transhumanist. Uh, back in the year 1998, I co-founded with Nick Bostrom the World Transhumanist Association, now Humanity Plus. Uh, transhumanists want to create a triple S civilization of super intelligence, super longevity, and this is my particular focus, super happiness, life based on gradients of intelligent bliss. And that's very hard to argue with. And those are very, very clear objectives that are quite inclusive. But at the same time, transhumanism is quite a controversial subject among people. It gets people quite frightened. So why do you think that is? Let's start with that question. Why does concepts of perpetual bliss and super longevity and super intelligence scare people so much, do you think? Oh, good heavens. That's a, a complicated uh, topic. I mean, for a start, uh, people are right to be suspicious because if you look at the history of utopian schemes, things have a habit of going wrong. I mean, take, for example, the, you know, the, the eugenics movement of the late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, eugen early eugenicists didn't set out to be evil. The idea of improving... Uh, improving uh, uh, genetic uh, makeup. Uh, yeah, I mean, naively, it was, it, 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 it seems self-evidently good. But of course, we know it's led to the horrors of sterilization, forced eugenics, and in the case of uh, Nazi Germany, the horrors of the, of the Third Reich. So yeah, in one sense, people are right to be suspicious. And yet at the same time, if we are not prepared to edit our genetic source codes, then pain and suffering and death and aging will be perpetuated indefinitely. So it's a bit of a dilemma, shall we say. A little bit. I think that the, the question where the, where the line tends to be drawn then is whether this utopia is imposed upon people or whether people are pursuing this mm. utopia for their own ends. So I had a conversation with Zoltan, who I'm sure you might have come across, who ran for the president <laughs> of the United States on the same show a couple, a couple of days ago. And we spoke mm. about the difference in the transhumanist movement between the sort of collectivist transhumanist movement and the more individualist libertarian way to the same end. And I think that that's also an interesting conversation to have and that the mm. end that you are talking about, an end where everybody is happy and experiencing the fullness of whatever life and consciousness is to them is hard to argue with. But when we get stuck on the means as to how we get along that journey, things could become a little bit less comfortable for a lot of people. So maybe you can start by explaining to us where you stand on that path. Should we be forced to be happy or should we be allowed to come around to that idea through our own ways? Uh, yes, a good question. But uh, no, no one should be forced to be happy. But it's, it, it never ceases to surprise me. A lot of people do have this suspicion that someone somewhere is going to try and force them to be happy against their will, which sadly I regard as, 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 as fanciful. <laughs> I say sadly, uh, perhaps not. <clears throat> no one is going to force you to be happy. No one is going to force you to up upgrade your, your DNA. But at the moment, pain, suffering, aging, death are, are coercive. And what the uh, new technologies genetic engineering AI offer is the prospect of liberation from our coercive Darwinian biology. Essentially, evolution via natural selection didn't design us to be happy. Uh, evolution, figuratively speaking, designed us to be discontented a lot of the time because discontent, uh, essentially, it, it increases the inclusive fitness of our genes. 
Um, and for the first time, thanks to biotechnology, we are essentially going to be able to choose our genetic makeup, choose the genetic makeup of our future children. Uh, the level of suffering in the living world is shortly going to become uh, an adjustable parameter. And essentially, yes, we are going to be able to transcend our biological limitations. The details are incredibly messy, but yes, all transhumanists, whether they can be crudely be called left-wing or right-wing transhumanists, uh, yeah, are very, very strong on the issue of freedom. But as the whole uh, COVID pandemic uh, illustrates, uh, we, we are ultimately all in this together. Uh, uh, as we see, the, you know, the debates over whether mask wearing should be mandatory or not. Um, extreme libertarianism is problematic because, uh, yeah, one can argue for complete liberty for, for, for Robinson Crusoe, but we're not Robinson Crusoes. Um, how one reconciles these uh, uh, dilemmas, yeah, it is obviously horrendously complicated. But uh, I think most, if not all, transhumanists would sign up for this, uh, this vision of a, of, of a future society of super intelligence, super longevity and super happiness, but with different, with different emphases. I mean, some transhumanists, uh, their main focus is, is radical life extension with cryonics as a backup option for people who suspect that they're not going to make it because after all, we can't yet reverse the biology of aging. Other transhumanists are focused on superintelligence, uh, which itself is ex extremely complicated. Some transhumanists uh, anticipate essentially uh, a so-called intelligence explosion of recursively self-improving software-based AI in which uh, uh, humans uh, essentially are going to be uh, completely outclassed in every fashion by our machines. Other transhumanists envisage some kind of fusion of humanity uh, with our machines, maybe mind uploading. This is the Kurzweilian uh, vision. Personally, I think it more likely that full spectrum superintelligence is going to be us, that we're going to genetically rewrite ourselves, augment ourselves with, uh, with, with neurochips. Yeah, essentially full spectrum superintelligence will be our, uh, our biological descendants. Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's definitely an exciting thing or concept to talk about. But I just want to go back to a second what you were talking about there with regards to freedom and how it plays mm -hmm. into these goals. And I think a way to look at it is that for me, certainly freedom is the ability to opt out of whatever is going on. And what you're really talking about is in our current existence, we're not free to opt out of the birth death cycle at all. So when you start to think about it in that sort of way, you can start to see that progressing beyond the, the bounds of our sort of natural life. And I know the word natural is wrong because technically everything is natural or we wouldn't be here to start with. But to, to progress beyond what is currently taken to be what life and death is, is actually broadening choice and freedom. So it's giving us an ability to opt out of the cycles that we have been born into, essentially against our will. <laughs> so I think that that's, that is one way to look at it rather than seeing that transgressing what is natural, depending on what your perspective, what natural is, is not reducing freedom. It's actually increasing the range of options available for us, the huge buffet of life to choose from. So to be able to choose our degree of suffering, whether you mm. are sort of crazy mm. enough to want to pick some suffering into your life, should not necessarily mm. stop someone else from choosing to have less of that going forward. Now, I have read quite a lot of your work, and I know Ludwig has quite a lot too. So we had quite a few questions we wanted to get into with you today. And I think that one of the where your work really focuses, as you said, is that you tend to focus on the happiness aspect of transhumanism rather than intelligence or longevity. And I would tend to agree with you because ultimately isn't achieving total bliss 
the ultimate end, right? And intelligence is a, is a means to that end. You can see it that way mm -hmm. rather than being an end in and of itself. Of course, different people would disagree with that perspective, but maybe you can elaborate mm -hmm. for us why you think super happiness is perhaps the most important of those three pillars of the whatever comes next for humanity. Mm. Yeah, I'm personally, I think uh, overriding moral obligation is to prevent, mitigate, and eventually abolish all forms of suffering throughout the living world, human and non-human. None of us uh, chose to be born. We're born, in a sense, uh, 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 to suffer. But what I don't want to do is suggest uh, that, uh, yeah, in order to sign up to the kind of the abolitionist project of, of getting rid of suffering, that anyone feels they need to sign up to suffering-focused ethics. I mean, per personally, I'm a, a negative utilitarian or a kind of secular Buddhist. Uh, that is, I think, our overriding obligation. But <clears throat> one of the beauties of being able to recalibrate the hedonic treadmill and ratchet up your hedonic set point and hedonic range is that it's not necessary to buy into anyone's vision of utopia and the good life. That if your hedonic set point is, becomes higher, if your hedonic range is higher, just imagine waking up tomorrow morning in an exceptionally good mood. Your core values and preference architecture can remain intact. And yet your default quality of life will be immensely improved. And yeah, transhumanists very keen on this, uh, on this idea of, of, of recalibrating the hedonic treadmill. There's a distinction between being blissful and, be, uh, and being blissed out. And uh, at the moment, yes, each of us has this complex web of negative feedback mechanisms in the central nervous system that stops us being happy or very sad in most cases for long. But by focusing on recalibrating hedonic set points, it should be possible for your default level of well-being uh, to be significantly higher. Uh, that if today, schematically, crudely, uh, your hedonic range is, let's say, minus 10 to hedonic zero to plus 10. In future, it would be possible to have a civilization that is, let's say, plus 10 to plus 30, and eventually maybe even a plus 90 to a plus 100. Uh, and yeah, in a future civilization, their darkest depths can be far richer than our peak experiences. And, and who could really argue with that, right? The whole like upward slope. That, that has been the history of humanity, hasn't it? Been improving our quality of life, not just the quantity <laughs> of it over, over the full course of, of human history. Obviously, there have been some rather big bumps on the road, but generally our trajectory has been on improving the quality and the quantity of life that each of us gets to enjoy. But I suppose the question then becomes, how do we actually go about this abolishment of suffering and moving ourselves up that ladder of more <laughs> beneficial experience for more of us? Is it merely to sort of stop doing the things that are harming us? Or should we be exploring ways to artificially, if you want to say, or more deliberately improve our base level of happiness and experience? Well, I think our first obligation is uh, to consider before bringing new life into the world whether one should use today's genetic crapshoot or whether all prospective parents should be offered pre-implantation genetic screening and counselling and soon, soon CRISPR genome editing so they can choose everything from uh, the approximate pain thresholds to the approximate uh, hedonic set points of their, their future children. Uh, you know, something like this, this is just an example, the SCN9A gene, the, the so-called volume knob for pain, dozens of different alleles, nonsense mutations abolish any kind of capacity to feel, uh, to feel physical pain, 
using a nonsense mutation would be premature for now. But if one, for example, chooses for one's children a benign variant of SCN9A, one will essentially ensure that uh, the pain thresholds, pain sensitivity of your child is like one of today's outliers, the kind of person who says, oh, pain, it's just a useful signaling mechanism. Um, and there are other genetic interventions that are going to be possible too. Um, so yeah, that is, that is new life. What about existing uh, humans? Um, once again, there are going to be genetic opportunities uh, here. For example, uh, 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 it's going to be possible to use uh, CRISPR to have uh, a one-off uh, genetic intervention that actually changes uh, the expression of your, of your existing gene. So this is going to actually uh, benefit uh, existing, uh, uh, existing people uh, too. Um, but it's not just, uh, the biohappiness revolution isn't just going to affect humans. Uh, at the moment, uh, humans treat non-human animals in quite appalling ways. A pig, for example, is a sentient and sapient as a free linguistic toddler. And yet we treat pigs in ways that would get the perpetrator locked up for life uh, if, the, if the victim were a human toddler. Um, and yeah, the biohappiness revolution will almost certainly involve shutting down factory farms and slaughterhouses. Uh, and the replacement of uh, today's animal agriculture with cultured meat and animal products. Now, personally, I would uh, urge anyone right now to, uh, uh, to, to, to quit meat and animal products. But realistically, the world is going to get veganized via cultured meat and meat substitutes. The final leg of the abolitionist project uh, on Earth is going to be non-human animals in nature. That although anyone brought up on a, a Disneyfied diet of wildlife documentaries will think of, of of nature as a beautiful place, or perhaps that you know uh, they think of wildlife parks, elephants, the beauties of nature. Nature is pretty savage a lot of the time. Uh, this is nature red in tooth and claw. Most animals in the wild lead short, nasty, brutish lives. They starve or end up in the jaws of a predator. But uh, thanks to genome editing and AI, the entire biosphere is essentially programmable. And if we decide that we want to have a low pain biosphere, followed by a, a no-pain biosphere, it'll be possible to use uh, such tools as uh, CRISPR-based synthetic gene drives to essentially reprogram the living world. I mean, it's obviously tremendously computationally ambitious, this, uh, and we're, 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 we're looking many decades, perhaps many centuries ahead, but uh, yeah, essentially the level of suffering nature is an adjustable parameter and we need to decide what level we consider is ethically optimal. What are you really talking about there for people that aren't familiar with your work when it comes to genetically editing nature itself to get rid of the, or at least blunt the sharp, nasty, brutish edge of what nature currently is? Well, Good heavens. Uh, in the long run, this is going to involve everything from uh, reprogramming uh, predators to, uh, now you might think, well, in a world without predation, surely there would be Malthusian catastrophe, a population explosion of herbivores. And so this would need to be combined with cross-species fertility regulation, using everything from immunocontraception in the case of large vertebrates to tunable synthetic gene drives in the case of, 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 of small fast, fast breeders. Um, this will, to some extent, it's not just a technical challenge, it's also an ethical challenge too. But the vision is ancient. You know, one thinks of 
of the Bible, of Isaiah, of a world where the lion and the wolf lie down with the lamb. Um, to bring about such a world, the peaceable kingdom, we're going to need to do a bit of genetic tweaking. But these are technical problems. Every single cubic meter, meter of the biosphere is going to be accessible to surveillance, micromanagement and control. Uh, on the one hand, this could lead to dystopian scenarios. Imagine some kind of global panopticon surveillance state. But technologies could be used yeah, to create a kind of pan-species welfare state in which all sentient beings can flourish without being eaten or, or, or physically molested in, in any way. And yeah, if one just uses those out terms like predation, it doesn't sound too bad, but just, just even briefly pause for five seconds and try to imagine what it must be like to be eaten alive or to be asphyxiated or disemboweled. It's, it's ghastly. And the only reason I'm uh, inviting your uh, uh, viewers to even consider it is that, yeah, essentially it's shortly going to become optional. And we, do, we need to decide do we want a living world in which sentient beings systematically hurt, harm, and kill each other? Or do we want a living world in which all sentient beings can flourish? And biotech gives us the tools for the job if we decide we want to civilize the biosphere. So you're really saying that if we can do something about suffering, then the moral obligation is, should we? And we probably should if we are able to do so. Obviously, it's slightly different if we are encountering problems that we cannot fix and that I suppose brings me to the next part of our conversation you're talking essentially here about trying to create uh, intelligently designed heaven here on earth as a as an ideal end goal but obviously we're not starting with a blank slate we are starting with a nasty world that is full of all sorts of problems all sorts of material problems mo many of which affect people's real bodies and i'm based in south africa we have huge unemployment rates we have a lot of poverty we have illnesses that are still rampant, illnesses, never mind COVID, TB and AIDS is still rampant. Mm. There's so much suffering in the world. So my question for you is, what is the first step we take in trying to deal with the suffering here on earth? As you're saying, for the wealthy, for people that have access to really advanced mm. technologies, maybe you can use genetic editing to improve your own longevity and to increase your own bliss levels. And that's fantastic for those who are able to access it. But how does it actually affect and help people in the here and now facing real problems and having empty bellies and needing, needing to actually sort of get through the day? How do we mm. start to address that base level of suffering? Do you have any comments there? But then I've got a couple of ideas that I will throw at you based on mm. your work if we don't get there in your answer. <laughs> Essentially, we need a twin track strategy of environmental, social, political form with genome reform. And though I might sound like a crude biological genetic determinist, both elements are essential. Essentially, we need a universal basic income, guaranteed uh, uh, jobs, housing, medical care for all. Now, uh, essentially, almost everyone these days recognizes that some version of the mixed economy uh, is, uh, is, is, is realistic. The, the question is, what kind of balance do you strike? And I, I gather you've, you've, you've chatted to Zoltan. Zoltan is very much identified with the, uh, what, what, loosely the right wing or the libertarian uh, strand of transhumanism. And yet Zoltan is himself a fan of universal basic income. Apologies, it's incredibly simplistic, of course, uh, this whole notion of of left and right, but nonetheless something. Yeah, it's, it's too <laughs> it's too useful to to get uh, uh, to give up. Obviously, there are plenty of people who, if when they hear hear uh, terms like universal basic income, universal healthcare, will shout socialism. But as far as I'm concerned, it's just 
precondition of any decent civilized society that everyone has access to, to health care uh, and yeah, a, a, a reasonable living income. Okay, well, we can carry on from this. I'm very glad that you opened the conversation in that regard. So you can talk about things like universal basic income and universal basic health care. But what those programs would essentially do is just get everyone up to some sort of basic living standards. So I call it sort of universal, fully automated sort of middle class communism is what we've kind of got to work with based on our current sort of global economy. If you sort of divide it up between everyone, which is not all that exciting. And that's not what the transhumanist promise mm. really is, which is about flourishing to the full extent that we possibly can. So you have written in the past about a desire for a universal basic happiness, which is when you start to kind of bring the concepts of universal basic income and universal basic healthcare together to say that future social welfare safety nets and policies should be optimized around distributing happiness to populations through all sorts of interventions, not just through getting just enough money to get through the day, but actually through mm. even through sort of biochemical interactions and, and interference through things like happiness pulls, which of course, once again, gets people who are frightened about these sorts of things, their eyebrows raising. So maybe do you mm. want to talk about biological interventions through some sort of medication that can actually raise our base level of existence beyond that very sort of mediocre sort of idea of communism mm. that gets everyone through the day, but is not, not exactly instilling a flourishing existence upon everyone. What is, what, is the, what is the thinking around interfering in our psychology and our biology to deliberately raise our living experience? Yeah, and there are three, very crudely, there are three ways uh, uh, to address this. The crudest is electrodes. Uh, this is the idea of wireheading. Back in uh, 1954, Olds and Milner's, Milner discovered what were then called what, the pleasure centers, essentially intracranial self-stimulation. Uh, and this was uh, the idea that uh, yeah, a, a rat or some uh, any other creature would compulsively self-stimulate its reward circuitry, and this was more rewarding than sex, food, or anything else. In practice, what are being stimulated? It's not the pleasure centers, but rather the desire centers. But nonetheless, very crudely, we can talk of of, of one possible strategy for happiness as the use of electrodes. Uh, now, a lot of people are appalled by this idea. Personally, it, it, it doesn't appall me, but it's not, nonetheless, it's not a viable solution for society. Uh, it's not a long-term solution because wireheads don't want to raise baby wireheads. We all did it, we'd die out very quickly. <laughs> we'd, 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 we'd die out. Also, wireheading is not consistent with uh, intelligence, critical insights, social responsibility. And in any case, most people don't like the thought of wiring up their brains and their pleasure centers. So, yeah, I don't consider this strategy as fruitful. The long-term strategy, we'll come to the intermediate strategy and alike, I think is, is genetic engineering. That uh, essentially, uh, yeah, uh, we need to rewrite the genome, starting off with a little bit of light genetic tweaking, not just the well-known <coughs> genetic uh, diseases, sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis, Tay-Sachs, and, 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 so, and, and so forth, um, but also genes, far, far out gene, comp gene, and so forth, that are implicated in default uh, hedonic tone. We've, we've mentioned uh, pain thresholds. M many, many genes are involved, but the volume knob for pain is, 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 is critical. Um, and yeah, essentially as a civilization, I think we need a strategy. I mean, the World Health Organization and its founding constitution of 1998, to so which it recently reaffirmed, defines health as a state of complete physical, social, and emotional well-being. Now, by that definition, no one in history to date has ever been healthy. And so I think perhaps we should aim for something 
a little less ambitious, but life based on gradients of intelligent bliss, i.e. a slightly less ambitious definition of, of health, it's only going to be feasible if we're prepared to edit our genetic source code. And I think we need to urge the World Health Organization to live up to its responsibilities in its founding constitution. Good health for all entails genetic, yeah, essentially getting rid of the genetic crapshoot and giving parents guidance on how to choose the genetic makeup of their future children. But, and this is, this is more intermediate, uh, it's not just future, uh, future sentient beings uh, we need to think about, of course, it is existing, suffering, sentient beings. Uh, and for the first time this year, a one-off genetic jab has been used to treat a transthyretin amyloidosis, which is a very nasty, progressive disease. And the one-off CRISPR infusion uh, essentially knocks out the er errant gene and the rogue protein it was uh, producing. And though this is very early days, actually seems to be effectively treating uh, this otherwise fatal genetic disorder. And it's going to be possible looking ahead 10, 15, 20 years if you have various nasty genes and uh, allelic combinations, it should be possible for you too to have CRISPR infusion and actually tweak your existing genome. And one of the most exciting things of, about this therapy is that the way that it targeted cells in the liver and only in the liver. I mean, this is, this is, this is, precision, en this is precision engineering and it's going to get a lot more precise. And so we need to uh, we need to have a debate as a society whether people should be, in a sense, uh, compelled to keep their existing genomes or whether people should be allowed to enhance and upgrade. And although I said, well, earlier in the sentence, enhance by the standards of post-human superintelligence, we are all severely dysfunctional. Uh, we are all malware in a sense, and so perhaps it's best to use the language of remediation. Uh, and yeah, sociologically, I think it's 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 very it's very much the case that people are relatively relaxed about the prospect of gene therapy to correct existing disorders. They're not nearly so relaxed, and in many cases hostile to the idea of enhancement. But essentially, we are all extremely sick. We all have this lethal progressive disorder called aging. We, we are, most of us, though not all of us, are, are predisposed to the anxiety disorders, depression, all kinds of stuff like that. Do we want to preserve the Darwinian status quo? Or do we want to create a civilization that is ultimately going to be underpinned by gradients of intelligent bliss. Let me ask you another question around the, the goal here. Going back to right at the beginning when we were talking about transhumanism, wanting to increase intelligence, increase happiness, increase longevity. In your perspective, is the goal to maximize individual human or conscious lifespan, or is the goal rather for collective civilizational life extension of the, the whole human life project. And I think this is always an interesting question to ask people who do play around in the transhumanist thinking space, because somehow sometimes those goals can come into conflict with each other and other times they can work a bit together. What is your perspective there? What is the goal that we're working towards? Do you want as many consciousnesses, consciousnesses as possible, all flourishing, or is the goal to sort of merge into a single entity somewhere at the end? Again, is it the, the individual life extension or is it the civilizational project that we're really tending towards? Or if you want to take a different tackle together, please go for it. 
Uh, the Transhumanist Declaration of 1998, reaffirmed in 2009, uh, affirms our commitment to the well-being of all sentience. And transhumanism at its best is universalist. And yeah, for example, I think everyone, uh, that something like cryonics, for example, should be uh, opt-out. It should be the default. It should be available to everyone. And so no one need feel left out of the transhumanist revolution. I suspect a lot of people listening to this discussion will be thinking, well, yeah, maybe one day uh, humans, transhumans, great go, go old, but it's too late for me. But if we do cryonically suspend people, and even offer offer cryothanasia in the case of let's say, uh, 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 people mm. with a progressive uh, disease or something like that. Essentially, everyone uh, can benefit. Uh, and so, yeah, a, a twin track strategy of combining uh, research into preventing aging, rejuvenation technologies with support for opt-out cryonics. So, yeah, the vision or at least my vision and the vision of many, though not all transhumanists, would be uh, universalists, the well-being of all sentience. Very hard to argue with that once again, because that doesn't leave anyone out at all. But there is that still that sort of subtext that comes in in terms of what you're picking up on there, in terms of inequality and access to these sorts of services, which is, I think, at the root of a lot of the arguments against your message. And unfortunately, the history of humanity does tend to have been driven ahead rather a lot by the unpleasant emotion of envy, right? We don't want people mm. to succeed if we're not able to do so. Hopefully, of course, we'll be able to evolve ourselves away from that. But currently, the way the world is set up, if I look at a lot of the problems in the world, they are based on fear and envy to a large extent. And quite a lot of the arguments against improvement or against enhancement, as you're talking about, whether that's enhancement of health, intelligence, or happiness, is this concept of unfairness. It's unfair that some people will be able to get access to these opportunities before others, and some may never be able to, to access them, some of us that are alive today. Now, I'm sure from your perspective, that's not a good argument to prevent those that are able from going ahead, but how would you speak to that? Because unfortunately, we do live in a messy world. It's not a perfect place to start with. We're not designing this place from scratch. And it is true. People that are able to enhance their offspring in the way that you talk about intelligently and, and happiness wise and all the rest of it are going to be at a huge advantage to those that cannot. And unfortunately, inequality does lead to conflict, which could inadvertently end up leading to more suffering, at least in the interim. How do you think about such really complicated, messy problems? And how do you talk to the people that will be essentially the collateral damage generations that have to live through this, this sort of this transition? Good heavens. Yes, a lot to tackle there. And Sorry. yeah, we are, we, are, we are designed to be jealous, envious, all these Darwinian emotions. Uh, emotions. And if you get, let's say, a 25% pay rise and all your colleagues get a 50% pay rise, rather than being pleased at your pay rise, you're actually going to feel subjectively worse off. But compare that. But compare that with uh, uh, hedonic recalibration. Crudely, and this is obviously a very crude example. If you have a, a recalibration of your hedonic treadmill that makes your your default hedonic set point twenty five percent higher, and a billionaire gets it fifty percent higher, you are going to feel much much happier. And there's a fundamental, fundamental difference here. I said it was a rather artificial example because I don't know any reason why uh, this should be the case. Um, and yeah, this is the difference between biological genetic interventions that improve default subjective well-being and the traditional environmental roots. That's, although you touched on the earlier the progress of civilization reform over the past few hundred, even the past few thousand years, on none of this environmental improvements has actually changed 
the workings of the hedonic treadmill. Uh, it can't. Nature didn't design us that way. Whereas if we are prepared to tackle the biological genetic roots of the problem, everyone can benefit. And sure, uh, the rich and the powerful are likely to get things first. But the beauty of digital technology, information-based technology, is that it's essentially egalitarian. And uh, without being too uh, lyrical and starry-eyed about the digital revolution and information technology, you and I, our collection of uh, video, our music collection is just as, as good as Bill Gates or, or Jeff Bezos. And so, yeah, it is ex going to be extremely cost effective, for example, using pre-implantation genetic screening and counselling for all prospective parents. The first genome to be sequenced uh, yeah, costs something like a billion dollars. Now you can get it done for a hundred dollars or, or less. And so, uh, yeah, although uh, inequalities in our society are terrible, the worst inequalities of all are hedonic inequalities. And there are many poor people who are, by Darwinian standards, cheerful and optimistic. And there are rich people who are uh, uh, depressive and uh, uh, tormented by all kinds of suffering. And hedonic uplift could be global. All kinds of positional goods, status goods, there is simply no way you can create an unlimited abundance uh, of positional goods, status goods. Uh, but what you can do is create hedonic uplift uh, for all. That can be universal. I like the way most of what we've spoken about today, you really emphasized fixing what is wrong with us and editing our genetic code to edit out suffering and to improve quality of life outcomes for all of us. But I did also want to talk to you about other interim solutions, because as I have mentioned, there are definitely real problems in our real world. We are unhealthy, there is crime, there is pollution, there's a whole lot of issues that we all have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So I don't want to get into that too much. But one of the alternatives that we can do quite quickly if we want to escape all of that is to literally escape, either by using mind-altering drugs and experiences or by escaping into virtual worlds. And I know that you have preferences as to those two routes, but maybe you can speak mm -hmm. to a little bit of your critique on people who are anti-SOMA and Brave New World on the one hand, but also perhaps also speaking to why conversely, perhaps escaping into virtual worlds to deal with real world inequality where you can have, everyone can have a castle in the sky by donning a VR headset, might not mm. achieve the same interim end while we are dealing with real world problems before we can evolve ourselves out of that. Those two interim routes, what are your thoughts mm. on that? Yeah, something like uh, immersive VR is going to get bigger and bigger. Uh, and yes, uh, immersive VR is, is wonderful, very exciting. A number of uh, problems though, for a start, immersive VR doesn't by itself recalibrate the hedonic treadmill. And so though the idea of being able to escape and uh, live in a fantasy world of your choosing uh, might sound appealing, on itself, it would it, it, it would pull, and that if you have a relatively low hedonic set point, you will feel angst-ridden or depressive, even in some multimodal immersive designer utopia. So, yeah, I think we will need to combine hedonic recalibration with immersive VR. Um, is it possible that in future we will choose to spend all our lives in immersive VR, escape from messy basement reality. Uh, a lot of the time, yes, but I don't think completely so, because essentially one needs to think about the nature of, of selection pressure in the basement. And just as wireheads don't uh, 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 want to raise baby wireheads, People who live, uh, spend their lives in immersive VR aren't going to want to have 
and our kids and, and raise kids in basement reality. So one of the advantages of raising hedonic set points is that we don't we won't need to choose between escapist fantasy worlds and nasty uh, uh, messy basement reality and that if we upgrade our reward circuitry essentially it'll be possible to engage with the real world uh, and yet at the same time it won't be as nasty as as today what the long-term mix of life in basement reality and life in immersive VR is going to be, uh, I, I, I don't pretend to know, but yeah, selection pressure is, 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 is critical. Um, and then to the other side of that question on your critique of the, the critics of Brave New World and an old Huxley's idea of how to engineer happiness. Do you have any, any right. comments you want to add there for people that aren't familiar <laughs> with your views there? So I said, yeah, I might always find them entertaining. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yes, uh, people worry, uh, or at least some people worry, they'll cite a brave new world. They worry that essentially if there is Soma, Huxley's ideal pleasure drug, or its genetic equivalent, that we will all become contentive dupes of the ruling elites who will be able to manipulate and control us. Um, clearly that is a worry, but nonetheless, it is worth uh, considering, uh, I think, what effect having a, a higher hedonic set point or an ideal pleasure drug is likely to have on your behavior in that uh, evolutionarily, uh, low mood depression is associated with subordination and defeat and that other things being equal, if your hedonic set point is, is raised, you're more likely to become active and self-assertive uh, and a citizen who participates in society. And one can turn Huxley's arguments on, on their head in a sense in that, yeah, if everyone is extremely happy with a hed high hedonic set point, they're less likely to behave in a, de uh, a depressive, subordinate, keep your head down manner. Uh, Huxley did actually anticipate uh, this scenario or something like this scenario in Brave New World. Uh, when John and the controller uh, are having a, a conversation and John, I, I think, was, uh, was asking, uh, why can't everyone be a, a kind of alpha? And the controller revealed that this experiment was tried in Cyprus. Uh, essentially, there was a civil war uh, because all the alphas, they wanted to be top dog and it didn't work. So rather than uh, leading, leading us all to be more manipulable. It may be that uh, turning us all into active citizens who don't let ourselves be bossed around creates uh, 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 social problems of its own. I suppose that's how, how far you take it, right? So if you up the intelligence along with the, with the success drive, mm -hmm. then you would sort of remove a lot of those problems. And I think that's the whole point of the transhumanist movement is that critics of it are looking at it piecemeal, are saying that we would have idiot bliss or you might have sort of evil intelligence rather than seeing mm. how if they go together, if good things go together, as they tend to do in our real world, whether you look at it from an economic lens or from a more philosophical lens, generally good things go together and bad things go together too. Unfortunately, our world is quite unfair in that regard, that there are vicious cycles and virtuous cycles. And if you look at it more holistically as to say that if we are increasing our altruism as long with our pleasure and along with our intelligence, then you get to avoid quite a lot of these problems, or at least that's what the intended goal should be. But I suppose the question that I wanted to end with you today, because we are coming to the end of our hour, is saying, let's go back to that very, very end goal that we're talking about here. If we do achieve the ultimate experience, would that be the end of, the, of humanity or would that just kind of be the beginning? Do we achieve some sort of equilibrium? Do we continue evolving and progressing? Or do we all just sort of disappear into some sort of final bliss bang, however you want to put it? 
Talking about the long-term future the long, long term. is, 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 is inevitably extremely speculative. But yes. by aiming at information-sensitive gradients of intelligent bliss, that's a mouthful, but it's worth, it's worth the mouthful rather than just saying bliss or, or super happiness. Essentially, the more one loves life, the more one tends to want to protect and preserve it. And rather than turning us into lotus eaters, a world of this new architecture of mind based entirely on information sensitive gradients of intelligent bliss, I think the whole enterprise of knowledge has scarcely begun. I think the whole enterprise of civilization has, 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 has scarcely begun. Uh, at the moment, we're seeing a lot about this the kind of space exploration billionaires in, in, in space. But once we have sorted out our reward circuitry and once we have phased out the biology of experience below hedonic zero, when we enjoy life based on gradients of intelligent bliss, it's going to be possible safely to explore psychedelia. And I think inner space has far more revelations than outer space. But the idea of traveling to other planets or other solar systems with, you know, we're remembering Star Trek and, and sci-fi from the past, whereas uh, the really, truly mind-wrenchingly exotic stuff is going to come from exploring alien state spaces of consciousness. Um, today, I don't recommend it. I think uh, dark Darwinian minds are, un are unsuited for psychedelic exploration. But once we have abolished the physical capacity to, uh, to undergo any form of suffering, when life is based on gradients of intelligent bliss, essentially, yes, I think there is going to be an explosion of knowledge as we can safely explore radically altered safe state spaces of consciousness. That is an incredible place to end this conversation. I do want to give you the, the last word if there's anything else or any other point you want to make. But otherwise, if you could tell people where you they can find you if you want to be found. <laughs> uh, well, my original uh, motherload website, State of the Art Web Design 1997, is headweb.com. H-E-D-W-E-B.com, headweb.com, in which I yes, uh, set out uh, kind of the hedonistic imperative and the different strands of transhumanism. Um, but uh, final message, no, I, just, I, I kind of wish uh, your, your listeners uh, well in, in, in their lives. I just hope they get the chance to taste the, the transhuman bliss that uh, I've talked about. Thank you so much. You've been an absolute joy to talk to. And hopefully we'll continue this conversation some other time. Thank you, Bronwyn. Goodbye.